they have no obligation to you whatsoever and uh, you have no obligation to them and we guarantee nothing uh, but they're pretty decent people they're human uh, even though they might not look it and uh, they'll uh, as Alex Haley said today they're they're just as anxious to find something wonderful as you are to be found wonderful Alex also said something about uh, today how many saw Alex today oh that's great but I feel so sorry for the people that didn't Alex has been coming here for so many years uh, he was the first person I called uh, 12 years ago to come and uh, then I got I got Alex and uh, uh, then I called Clifton Fadiman and um, Fadiman was a little wary the you know he's um, one of the judges and founders of the Book of the Month Club and uh, a prestigious gentleman and one that has scared me to death all my life ever since I won something when I was 19 on information please but uh, he uh, I, I, he was a little wary so I don't like writers conferences much I don't go to them he said who have you got who else you've got and I said well I got Alex Haley I've got uh, I got Bud Schulberg uh, I've got Irwin Shaw I couldn't think of any other writers all of a sudden he said you've got all those people I said they're all coming so uh, he said well I'll come then all right and so then I call Irwin Shaw and he says who have you got I said well I got I got I got Clifton Fadiman I got Alex Haley I got Bud Schulberg and uh, I think I got Irving Wallace and he said, okay, I'll come. Well, that's the way the writer's conference started. <laughs> you heard about how Alex Haley started. You heard about Alex Haley started today writing love letters for a dollar a piece or whatever it was. Now, the other thing that impressed me about, uh, well, everything impressed me about Alex, because it, even though we've heard that talk about Roots so many times, that a lot of old timers who've heard it, if I heard that talk about Roots since I was one of the first people and Nils and I were one of the first people to hear the story, much less read it, part of it was, a great part of it was written in my studio in San Francisco. And so I know that story backwards and forwards. And if he starts talking about the Gabeg Belongo River and they're going up the river to get the, the, to make the drum, if he falters on one word, I prompt him, which is very embarrassing to him. Well, that's what I thought it was going to be today, and um, I'm afraid some of our, our people that have heard him before said, well, we've heard it, we don't want to hear it again. And uh, although it constantly fascinates me, uh, but he, he gave the most wonderful talk today, and uh, I can't repeat it uh, here, but uh, ask, ask somebody if you didn't hear him, or by the tape, by the tape, by the tape. It is marvelous. He, he talked about what happened to him, after roots exploded and when you hit it big in america with a bestseller it changes your life i mean you instantly get a divorce uh you get a mercedes uh, i went through it all and one of the things he said do you remember today how wonderful it was he said when i walked in the reader's digest room with all the opulence the private room and everybody's smiling Everybody's smiling at me. He said, nobody ever smiled at me like that before. He said, I saw many, so many 32 mouths. Uh, I mean, everybody. How many teeth are there? There were a lot of teeth there. And he said, um, everybody began asking me about the affairs in Europe, you know, and he said, things that nobody ever asked me before and things I don't know anything about. 
So that can happen to, to and did happen to Alex, and can happen to any of us. But one of the things he mentioned, <coughs> which I thought was very interesting, I've never heard, heard it said quite this way, but he, he uh, said, if you go into, uh, you say when you're a little kid, I'm going to be a doctor, you expect to spend, what, six years in learning to become a doctor. You're going to be a lawyer, you know how many years you're going to spend. Uh, when you decide you're going to be a, a writer, you don't know how many years you're going to spend. And you're reluctant to even set, a, set aside totally the way you have to if you're going to be a, a doctor or a brain surgeon or something like that. You don't set aside and dedicate yourself totally to that. You kind of have something you do on the weekends or when you're free. Uh, after golf or before uh, Laverne and Shirley or whatever. Never instead. But, uh, and he said, but here you're a writer and it's a profession. You can't set a limit on it. And he said, he, I think it was 10 years, he said, before he sold his first thing. And by that time, he'd studied, he'd worked, he'd, just like a lawyer or a doctor. And uh, uh, why, why should we expect to write the first thing we ever write and, uh, and sell it and become rich and famous in Alex Haley's? And he made that point wonderfully. Now we come tonight to a, an overnight sensation. I mean, he's just uh, sat down and wrote, a, and he's, the hottest thing is Time Magazine pointed out that he's the hottest thing in writing today, in thriller writing. Now, he's an overnight sensation. Um, 23 books? 23 books! And I hate to tell you, I had never heard of Elmore Leonard uh, four months ago, five months ago. And Artie Shaw, the old band leader, and anybody who applauds is over 50, so girls don't applaud. Artie, you're not a girl, John Hay. Uh, Artie Shaw called, and he's one of the best red men in the world, as well as one of the great musicians of all time. And he said, what do you think of Elmore Leonard? And I said, I don't think a heck of a lot about him, because I ne never heard of him. And he said, God, you've got to go out and get, get his books. I, I went out and bought this is not my field. I thought it was a mystery writer, and he is no more a mystery writer. Well, we're going to hear about more from Chuck shortly about that, but I got hooked, and I read, I've never done this, but I'd walk from one room to the other, uh, and i walk from the kitchen into the bedroom or whatever, reading. I kept it in my pocket, and I read it at stoplights. Uh, uh, and uh, I'd never read anybody so riveting since James M. Cain. And that's, I learned more from James M. Cain. People say, well, I must have learned a lot from Hemingway. Well, I hope I did, but I learned more from James M. Cain. And I think that we could disband the whole conference right now and all go home and read Elmore Leonard, and we might learn more than we're ever going to learn the rest of the week. It's a lesson in how to keep turning the page, how to create, how, how to create the real characters, and how to create conflict, and how to create Compassion. Now, those are the three C's. Conflict, character, characterization, and compassion that you have to have in any successful book. I call Elmore Leonard. I write him, and I write a gushing letter back and um, say, can you come to our conference? And thank God I got him six months ago, because after two pages in Time Magazine last week, a full page in Woman's Wear Daily, what are you doing there, Elmore? Um, uh, an effusive review in The New Yorker, which is not known for its effusiveness, about um, uh, 
low-life novels. And most of his novels are, are low-lives. And how he makes us care for those low-lives, I still don't know. But maybe Chuck Champlin, who uh, happens to be the most distinguished, uh, I think, uh, entertainment um, literary critic, film critic, and uh, head of the entertainment uh, section of the Los Angeles Times, which I happen to think is a wonderful newspaper also. We're going to hope that Chuck will explain it all to us before we meet Elmore. Chuck? Thank you. I doubt if I am, but uh, thank you, Paul. Thank you, Barnaby. And hello again, fellow members of the joyful captivity of the written word. I always like to come here because I always like to be among writers. We share that feeling that uh, if that's what we want to do, there's absolutely nothing that's going to keep us happy for very long. And the only thing that will come close is reading. And I think that for a, a reading writer or a writing reader, there's nothing quite like the discovery of a new talent. As Barnaby says, you just it grabs you and you, you read it during forest fires and in plane crashes and everything else. And I had that feeling uh, long ago without prompting from Artie Shaw, but from one of the guys that works on the copy desk down at the, the paper. And I know exactly what it is. And I've got to tell you, yesterday there was a book sale down in Carpinteria. And uh, it was in the Veterans Memorial Building right next to the library. And I went in, they were selling books. This is a sobering thought for an author. Author, They were selling books uh, at the hours I was there at 25 cents an inch. And uh, uh, during the peak hours, they go up to 50 cents an inch, you know, stacked. And I looked through however many thousand books there were on display there. Because once you make that moment of discovery an author, then you're going crazy to find everything that's ever been in print. And I looked all through, and as far as I know, and I looked through several thousand volumes, there was only one copy of Elmore Leonard available. And uh, it was available, obviously, only uh, because it was mistabled uh, along with standard accounting procedures and other works of alleged general interest. <laughs> if it had been in fiction, it would have been long gone, I know. Anyway, uh, it's, he is really... Uh, a late discovery by a lot of people. And as he has said, some of the reviewers say, where have I been all these years? And some of the reviewers say, where has he been all these years? Depending on how much ego the reviewer has. Uh, but um, Dutch Leonard, named for the famous knuckleball picture of the Washington senators, uh, as he says, I've been around a long time. And indeed, he has written 24 novels, one of which Bantam has been holding for a, a few years under interesting circumstances, 30 short stories. And uh, although he is a young guy, as you will quickly see, he came in sort of at the tail end of the pulps. And when he decided, in addition to advertising, that he was going to write uh, fiction, he started writing westerns not because he read westerns, but because he watched them. He's one of the great movie fans of all time. And uh, for a long time, he was probably well known around Hollywood. He wrote uh, one of the classic westerns called 310 to Yuma, and another uh, a book called, uh, novel called The Tall T. And he wrote Ombre, which was an early film for uh, Paul Newman. Uh, it's interesting. You can talk about crime novelists. And last year, I was here talking about the, the late and wonderful Ross MacDonald. And it is true that 
Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler, Ross MacDonald, and now Dutch Leonard can all be talked about as crime writers. And yet, what a world of difference among them. Uh, and I'm, R Ross MacDonald, I think, wrote about middle-class people who had sort of gotten in trouble in their own lives and uh, who got involved in crime. They were not inherently criminals. Dashiell Hammett, of course, wrote about criminals, as did Chandler. But any writer is individual if he's worth anything at all. And I think that Dutch Leonard is, as a lot of you, I hope, have discovered, is a unique voice. Uh, and he said something. I was talking to him this afternoon. And he certainly has a wonderful ear for dialogue. And he writes a very unassertive kind of prose. He calls it flat. I think it moves a little too fast to be called flat. But he says, I read over my stuff, and if it looks like writing, I rewrite it. And uh, I think, yeah, what a refreshing kind of attitude. But I was going through some of the clips, and I'm just, I'm, I must say, I'm very pleased about some of the reviews that we've run down at the paper. I can't claim credit for any of them. But uh, in our review of Stick uh, back in 1983, uh, the writer, I think it was Herbert Gold from San Francisco, said he has an uncanny sense of plot, pace, and an inexhaustible flair for the nervous rhythm, rhythms of contemporary urban speech. And I think any of you who have indeed read him would say, spot on. And my old boss, Nick Williams, who retired as the editor of the Los Angeles Times and now has the cushiest job in the world, which is reading crime and mystery novels and reviewing, reviewing them for us once a month, said in, in a review of, of Cat Chaser, and Nick is kind of laid back and kind of funny, but he said uh, uh, he's most romantic in a very hard-boiled way. He said, uh, some of the answers were new to me. Hell, I'd never even run across the questions, you know. And... Uh, uh, the new one, uh, Alan Chews reviewed it for us, uh, the novel La Brava, and he said, uh, talked about the moral ambiguity, which I think is one of the things that's true of the novels and the wonderful sense of physical peril, but he said, I call it impure entertainment. He gives off too many resonances on moral themes, on the confusions we make between illusion and reality to be called pure. Well, he does write page turners, but James Stewart once said about the movies that what makes them memorable is that they give us pieces of time. And I think that the novels of Elmore Dutch Leonard are giving us pieces of our time and that anybody wants to know what was going on in our heads and in our society in these years, they will look to those novels and know remarkably accurately what we were like. And it's a great pleasure for me to introduce Elmore Dutch Leonard. Thank you. Those are awfully nice words to hear. Last year I was at the American Booksellers Convention in uh, Dallas. I was at a cocktail party and suddenly a camera crew, it was the Today Show camera crew, were put their lights in my face and a, and a voice from behind the lights somewhere said, what's it like for a working novelist to come to an affair like this? and see the celebrity authors, that is the celebrities who have written their book, get all the attention, all the play from the press. And there was Carol Baker was there and Victoria Principal and uh, Lana Turner, Dick Cavett. And 
with the lights in my face, I said, well, um, I suppose everyone could have uh, one book in them. I said, I've written 23 books, and I hope I don't have to write 23 more. But uh, it's, it's misleading in a way. The prospect of writing 23 books uh, could be overpowering. It could send you to bed and pull the covers up over your head. If you the fact that you can write them one at a time will relieve that anxiety. I don't even like the idea of, of a three-book contract with a publisher. The fact that I know I'm going to have to write three more books. But I hope I, I write a lot more than that. Uh, it's misleading to say, though, that I hope I don't have to write 23 more because I really enjoy writing. Um, last Thursday night in New York, a program was aired uh, uh, over PBS. The, it's called First Edition, which is sponsored by the Book of the Month. And I was interviewed, it was taped some months ago, but my segment was aired last Thursday in New York. I was interviewed by John Leonard and uh, Nancy Evans. And uh, I had a pretty good time, too. I thought I might be quite intimidated by John Leonard, no relation. Um, but we got along very well and had a good good time. And he said, after toward the end of it, he said, "You're not supposed to say that you enjoy writing." And he said after that we probably got deeper into the process of writing, uh, what you do, what you think, than he had with any other author before that. Um, I don't want to tell you anything you already know. I I want to. I want to try and encourage you. Uh, I think I think I'm a, a pretty good example of a person, a writer who finds finds out how to do it best. That is how I can do it best by experimentation, by reading, by studying the authors that I that I admired, by taking their books apart <coughs> down to how they how they punctuate, uh, and to see, find out what I can do and what I can't do. And I've learned that, and I avoid, thank you, I avoid doing what I know I can't do. I, I write in a very naturalistic style because I don't have a good narrative voice. I let my characters do it because I'm not a good storyteller myself so I keep my nose out of it. I let my characters do all the work. All the book from scene to scene to scene is somebody's sound, not mine. But I'm in there because I'm all the characters. That's where I have all the fun. Uh, and I do want to talk more about writing than having written. Because having written doesn't mean anything to me. Um, the number of books or what you get out of it, I mean outside of readers, of course, and uh, money in order to, to, which will keep you doing it. Um, if, you, if, if, if you think of a question, if I pause and you think of a question, ask it right away because there's not a lot of format to this one. 
I brought my friends of the library speech along, which is the wrong one. Uh, when, I, when I say that I enjoy writing, I mean I enjoy writing books. I don't enjoy writing letters. I think letters are the hardest things there are to, to uh, write. I don't enjoy writing reviews or, or uh, I'm not a journalist. Um, I'm asked to write things. I'm asked to write a piece on, uh, I mean a piece of, of, of journalism, and I don't feel qualified to do it. I, th I think, well, I may do a, a, a mediocre job at best, but it's not, gonna, it's, it's not gonna have the life in it that I know that I can put in, into a book, which I enjoy doing. And I don't particularly, I have to tell you this, I don't particularly like to plot at all. I used to outline my stories in, in detail. I, a couple of books, I probably wrote as many as 50 pages, each chapter outlined. I knew everything that was gonna happen. And by the, by the time then that I came to write the book, as I came to each scene, I'd lost my enthusiasm, my freshness for it. And I just kind of wrote it. Um, I would rather not know what's going to happen. If I don't know what's going to happen, you don't know what's going to happen. Even though some smart aleck reviewer will say, well, I knew three chapters before the end how it was going to end. He knew a lot more than I did, see? <laughs> I would rather ask my wife how to end it. And she comes up with some good ones. La Brava, for example. I got 30 pages from the end. And it was mostly solved except for, that is, the bad guys were out of the way, but there was still the female lead. What is going to happen to her? What's going to happen to, well, some other people in general? And I said to my wife, here are the four things that can happen. And she said, what about this one? And I said, yeah, that's it. Because it, it was a perfectly natural solution, conclusion. And I think it really worked. Um, so what I do, I, I begin with kind of a vague idea, a situation, uh, La Brava. La Brava is a guy named Joe La Brava who is a photographer, a street photographer, likes to shoot the seamy side. He likes to shoot the kind of pictures that I like to look at. Um, and he meets, and he's doing this in South Beach, the southern tip of Miami Beach, because the area intrigues me a lot. I like the contrast in the people, the contrast in the look of the place. He meets a former film star who's about 12, at least 12 years older than he is who he fell in love with when he was 12 years old, when he saw her in black and white pictures, in the movies, when she was a leading lady in film noir, who uh, was usually the bad girl. She would end up in the picture, at the end of the picture, the end of her part of the picture, she would fold her arms like this and say, swell, tapping her foot. as June Allison went off with John Payne, you see. <laughs> Swell. Or, she got shot. 
And this Anne Labrava, looking at her 12 years old, and subsequently, I mean, at, at throughout the, throughout his life, he he saw her pictures, and when he was younger, he also saw them later when he was when he was. Uh, a grown man, a secret service man assigned to guarding Bess Truman. And Bess was out in back somewhere, an invalid, and he was sitting in the living room guarding Bess and watching movies. And he saw Jean Shaw, female lead, again. Um, this, that's the, well, when I started, I didn't even know that much. Here's, here's, Here's a fellow who's a photographer with a background of, of uh, not so much investigative work, but he's a keen observer. He, he, he can look at, a, at people on a crowded street and see someone who might be a little suspicious. Here's the former movie actress. Um, there's an extortion plot. He saves, he, he, he gets her out of it. He saves her life. That start with just a vague idea like that. All right, you read the book, and you find out it's not very much like that at all. Um, a character comes along. I introduce a character. I introduce characters, and they sort of audition. Let's see if they work or not. A character might have a speaking part, but no name. Un until he talks so well, I decide, I've got to do more than just give him a name. I've got to make this guy a star, and he becomes the third lead. Another character is thrown out. Not thrown out, demoted. The character is, serves a purpose, but the character just sort of, is just sort of there. Um, and so, and my, my favorite characters are the ones who kind of busted in that way, who, who made their way into the book on their own. Because I heard them, I listened to them, I, I, I listened to them talk, I, I looked at scenes through their point of view, and I saw that a scene could work a lot better that way. I write, I'm very, very conscious of point of view. There's a sound, the sound of the scene. Two people are talking, but it begins with one of them's point of view. One of them listening to the other, not just two people one-on-one. -on -one. Because that point of view gives it an extra element. I, I did something in my new book. I, I finished a book last week that will come out probably in December, January, um, which I have two men on the phone talking. Now, in the scene, there's a fellow who runs a... He's a, he's a casino manager. He's a, a gambling casino manager in, in Atlantic City. And he's talking on the telephone to a mafia uh, higher up, capo something or other. And, this, and, and I wrote it, just the two guys talking together. And it worked pretty well. But then I thought, wait, it, it needs something. So I introduced another character. I put another character in the room. And the other character is... Jackie Garbo is the name of the casino manager. I put his bodyguard in the, in the room. And his bodyguard is a fellow by the name of DeLeon Johnson. He's six foot five, 250, 260 pounds. 
he played uh, for the uh, Miami Dolphins, played for Michigan State. He uh, went to high school in Detroit, but he was born in Ethiopia. And he came to Detroit when he was 10 years old, and his name was Muslaha Jim Jabara. But he changed his name in high school to DeLeon Johnson. Now he's in this room, and he's this casino manager's bodyguard. And as Jackie Garbo picks up the phone and hears that it's this fellow by the name of who they called the Ching. His name is Frank Chingoro, and they refer to him usually as the Ching. And when he hears, finds out it's the Ching, he points to the other phone, the extension, and he gets the moose. He always refers to uh, DeLeon as the moose. The main character refers to him as DeLeon, and DeLeon likes the main character better, better than he likes Jackie Garbo. Gets on the extension. Then I write it from the bodyguard's point of view. Now I've got a third sound in the scene. I've got this guy saying things between the lines, commenting on this one guy, the, the, the heavy from South Philadelphia, talking to a guy who spent 20 years in Las Vegas, both of them trying to see how, trying to sound tougher, hipper, sharper than the other, and the, and, and the moose commenting in his mind between the lines. So I've got, I've got then kind of like three rings going at once. I'll do a scene from somebody's point of view, the woman's point of view. Try it from the man's point of view. And it happens to work better, say, in a particular situation. Write the scene, give the woman the last line the punchline of the scene, at least the indication that she's one-upped him in this scene. She's had the last line, the best line. Go a little farther in the story and I find out, nope, he's got to win that scene. He's got to come out better in that scene. Even though it's, it sounds great that, that the way it works out, that the interchange, the intercutting, the inner the, uh, the exchanges of dialogue comes down that, bang, she's got the last line and it sounds great. But if I find out it's not going to help my story, then I've got to change it around. And, and I say, hit it again. Let her have that line, but now it's not the last line anymore. Make it better and build a little more to that on top of that and then give the, the guy the last line. Keep trying to make it better all the time. I find out, I find that I have to use, I have to do it this way. It's, it's just the most natural way for me to write, to have my characters tell the story. Um, you've got to find out what your voice is, how you, in what in what way you, you best write. Uh, I, avoid, I, have, I avoid images. I never use similes or metaphors for two reasons. One reason, I think they stop the story. At least they slow the story up. And second, I'm not good at them. My similes are tired and I said, oh, the hell with it. To me, when I try and do it anyway, it looks like I'm trying to show off. 
that here I am writing, yeah? Writing. I don't want, I don't want you to be aware of me. I want you to be so immersed in that book as I am when I'm writing it that you're not aware of anyone writing it. The, what, uh, and what happens, however, once you're in this business now and you've published some books and you're given it your all and you're lost in the story and the phone rings and it's your agent or it's your publisher or both one after the other who might be negotiating a contract of the book that you're writing and you're pulled out of this you're pulled out of your story out of this other world to this the reality of the business side of writing which I don't think is, is much fun. It's fun when your agent calls and says, well, we made a deal and the contract will be coming in a couple of weeks or something like that and we got X number of dollars. That's fun. But not when your agent says, well, he insists on a three-book deal and I told him he's crazy. You're going to give him one book and you want so much money. And then the, the publisher calls up and says, you know my problems. You know all the money we've put into advertising your book. We haven't sold enough. And he tells the agent that, as well as me. And the agent says, well, then what do you want the new one for? <laughs> and the publisher says, we're bringing you along, boy. And the agent's calling you kiddo. <laughs> and you feel like a little child there between these fellas, you see. And the publisher says, I've really helped you. I've talked to all of these, I've talked to these leading reviewers. I've forced them to read your book. We've put so much money into advertising, promotion, so on. And I said, yeah, well that's your business. And my business is to write. So why don't you leave me alone, see? if you want a good book. <laughs> now, I, I think it's all right for, for certain editors or publishers to, I think, well, it's out of line, but at the same time, if you're, if you're friends, then I suppose it's all right for the publisher to do that. Then maybe you shouldn't be friends with your publisher. Uh, re relationship with the with the agent, I feel, I felt for the first 20 years at least that I worked for my agent and that he gave, sent me a paycheck every once in a while when, <laughs> when he felt like it. <laughs> but my agent is a lot older than I am. I mean a lot. She's been an agent in Hollywood for 50 years. So I do listen to him. I don't listen to his plot ideas. <laughs> I listen to his negotiating ideas. And 90% and of the times I say, good, you, you do it. You, that's your business, not mine. Um, 
I've developed, getting back to writing, I've, I've, I feel I have developed this style. Uh, John D. McDonald says you have to write, I think, a million words before you know what you're doing. And that could be, that could be uh, 10 years. I felt it took me 10 to 15 years to, to really figure out what I'm doing and to become confident in what I'm doing. Confident despite editors saying, uh, we, we're having trouble selling you because you, you kind of fall between the, the cracks. You don't, you don't fit neatly into a category. And I said, what, do you, what should I do? Change my style? No, no, don't change your style. Keep, keep at it. And I said, well, sell the book. And I said, all right, we'll sell it. Don't worry. But they didn't sell it, see? So then I move on. I go to another publisher. And they say, boy, we love your work. Don't worry, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna sell your book. They didn't sell the book. So I move on. I'd finally gotten beyond that point where you're grateful to the publisher for buying your book, like he's doing you a big favor. Now, I can let my agent yell at those publishers all he wants and applaud. <laughs> I have friends in the publishing business. I admire there are men I admire in the publishing business and like very much. Respect. I haven't had a lot of, I haven't needed a lot of editing help in the last 10 years. Um, there were times I, I, I was looking at some old letters from, from editors that go back 25 years and, uh, and I'd read that a letter from Don Fine who was my editor at Dell 25 years ago and then was my editor at Arbor House until he was canned last fall but he published four of my books. Um, to go through an old, old letter with a list of all the changes, or at least queries. But, I mean, he never really demanded anything until he got on the phone, then he'd scream at you. But in the letter, just, I don't understand this, change it. You see, line 13, page 158, and so on. Um, I remember one night, about 25 years ago, coming home from work and standing in the hall of the house with my raincoat on, I was wet, and on the phone to Don Fine, and he was reading all these changes that he wanted. And I remember going down into the basement where I was working at the time, where I wrote that night and started making the changes. I remember that in that basement office, my chair, was too low for the desk, and the windows were way up there, and I don't know how I wrote a word in that basement. But something that, that really got me going, that got me off to a start, good start, in the 50s, about, I started selling in 19, my first story sold in 1951 to Argosy. It was a novelette for a thousand bucks without an agent, and I thought, this is easy. This is going to be fun. And it wasn't, but it wasn't fun for a while. Now it's fun. Um, what, I, what I started to do about 1953 
was get up at five o'clock in the morning before I went to work. And I'd work from five to seven and do two pages. I figured a page an hour. Then at seven I would get dressed to go to work. But I, I, I failed in, in the beginning. Well, first it took me about two months to even get out of bed. But finally, when I started start getting out of bed, then I'd pick something up and start reading it instead of writing. So then I, I made myself another rule, is that I couldn't put the coffee on until I had started to write, until I had written at least a paragraph, no matter how long the paragraph was, but at least to get into it. And, and eventually, that way, I forced myself to write two pages a day. And I didn't write at night. I would, maybe I'd correct a little bit, but I couldn't write at night anyway, because then I'd go to work and write. write wrote uh, Chevrolet ads. But sometimes I'd write in my drawer at work. And I'd put my arm in my drawer, my hand in my drawer, and write a book, and if somebody came out, I'd close the drawer. Get my hand out and close the drawer. Um, Where am I? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, I said, I stay out of it. I want my reader never to be conscious of the writer writing. And I know I'm succeeding when the village voice titles a piece about me, the author vanishes. It said, Leonard does his best to efface style and has done this so successfully that few readers know about him at all. <laughs> that, was, that was three years ago. There's no obtrusive sound in the telling of his story. Meanwhile, Newsweek was saying, well, Leonard himself is so expertly unassuming. New York Times. He avoids artiness, writes clear expository prose. I like that. While... The aesthetic subtext of my work, I am told, is the systematic exposure of artistic pretension. So there. It is interesting to learn in reviews of underlying purposes and attitudes that I have. What I'm most happy about is that I'm being recognized exactly for what I set out to do, to tell stories simply and with economy. I can look at my very early work, the first story I ever sold 33 years ago, when I was 25, and I can hear the voice I was trying to develop. Uh, I knew what I wanted to do, um, the, way I went, the way I wanted to write, but it took me years, years of learning the craft and building confidence, confidence to, to stay with my approach to writing before I really developed a rhythm and I could swing with my prose and hear the tone of the whole book. I'm very, very conscious of rhythm. I'm conscious of the flow of it, from paragraph to paragraph to paragraph. I like to see a lot of, I like to see white space on my page. I, 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 want, it, I want it to be easy to read. There are pages that are solid and there's a reason for them, for it. But for the most part, when the story is moving, I want to see white space. 
I use he said and she said mostly for beats, for pauses, rather than for identification. There's a line, he said, because you want that little pause before you present the next line, what she said. A piece about me in Time Magazine said that in my books, grammar is irrelevant. Actually, it's not irrelevant. It's expendable. <laughs> it, out it goes if it gets in the way. But I can get away with it because the voice, what you, what you, the narrative is usually somebody's point of view and has the sound of that character. And all of my characters, well, most of my characters, are ungrammatical. In a way, I look at this, the technique I use, I think it's kind of like uh, writing first person, first person story in the third person. You just don't see any eyes in it. Um, Back, I referred to that first edition uh, interview, and, and I said by far the greatest was, was Ernest Hemingway, that I really studied Hemingway. I, I read For Whom the Bell Tolls over and over and learned how to write westerns reading that book. I, I, I studied everything he did, everything he does, did, and but I, but I was influenced by other writers who are so, who are wholly removed from, I mean, they're not anywhere near Hemingway in the way they write or the way they sound. Like Richard Bissell, for example, who wrote uh, Seven and a Half Cents, which became the pajama game. Mark Harris, who wrote Bang the Drum Slowly. I like their attitude. I have my own attitude, but my attitude, I feel, is akin more closely, certainly more closely akin to Richard Bissell, whose character on a date takes her down to the Mississippi River to shore some factories than to Ernest, than to serious Ernest Hemingway, you see? Because I see more absurdity, I see more humor than poor Ernie did. I see humor in... Uh, I see, I see it everywhere. But I have, a, I have a real warm feeling for all of my people, even the bad guys. And I think, and it's been pointed out in reviews, that it does show that this is part of my attitude. And this is part of how, why these people come to life. Because they're, so, they're real to me. See, after I finish a book, for several weeks, I wonder where the people are, what they're doing. And sometimes I see them just kind of sitting there like mannequins, uh, motionless. And sometimes I see them doing things without me, doing things on their own. I'm not tempted to use them again, though. I use some of them again and change their name. I, all my heroes, for the most part, are the same guy. 
just change his name. Because if you use the same continuing character in your stories, it's much harder to sell to the studios. Because they, Universal owns Stick. So I can't sell Stick to anyone before, I don't know, December of 86 or something like that. I went through one book, City Primeval, there was a detective named Raymond Cruz. So I was going to use Raymond. Raymond was going to be my continuing character. And I wrote Raymond into Split Images. And then I sent it to my agent. And he said, we can't offer this in Hollywood because United Artists owns Raymond Cruz. So I went through the manuscript and I changed his name to Brian Hurd and lightened his mustache. <laughs> and my eldest son said, I like Brian Hurd a lot better than Raymond Cruz. <laughs> but he was a little different. I don't know, I don't know why. Um, the only lead character that I, that I have written that I think is a little different than the rest is Stick, Ernest Stickley Jr., except that his, his attitude is pretty much the same. Uh, he might like country music uh, more than the other guys. I submit that might be the only thing. He, he's not as nifty a dresser as some of the others, but none of them is really a good dresser at all. They're all kind of, well, they're not as good as dressers Robert Parker's uh, guys. <laughs> so I was influenced by Hemingway. I was influenced by James M. Cain to a great degree. I was influenced before that by Eric Marie Remarque, All Quiet on the Western Front. I, wore, I, I, I wrote a World War I play in the fifth grade and then didn't write another thing until I was in college. And then really started to write 1951 when I decided that I had to channel my effort into a particular type of writing and chose westerns as the genre because I liked western movies but didn't read western books. It was going to be either crime or westerns. I've never been I've never had the urge to write a private eye story, although my guys, in a way, are, well, some are, well, one, anyway. Uh, Jack Ryan in Unknown Man Number 89, he's a process server, and that's about as close as you can get. I mean, that's as close as I have gotten. Um, and I, but I was thrown into I was labeled by reviewers. I was thrown into different schools. I was, from the beginning, when I say the beginning, the mid-70s anyway, when I started writing contemporary stories, thrown in with uh, Chandler and Hammett. And I, don't, I don't think there's any similarity at all. I don't think we're in the same school at all. Um, I haven't even read that much Chandler and Hammett, and it's been 40 years since, I, uh, since I've read either of them. Um, Larry Kent in the Chicago Tribune said, I've read six of Leonard's novels and reviewed the last two, and I'm going to keep reading and write a, writing about him until I get it right. <laughs> I write crime without fitting it neatly or completely into the genre, and I become a stylist by intentionally avoiding style. Um, 
it's I'm I'm so pleased now that I can write whatever I want uh, knowing my limitations there was a time in the 50s when when I was aiming everything my agent in New York before I had the grand old man in Hollywood was aiming everything at the Saturday Evening Post and they were rejecting everything because it was too gray it was too relentless I didn't have any blue sky in my story I I was probably too serious. I was probably taking myself too seriously, or at least I was certainly taking my writing too seriously. I was trying to write instead of just, I don't know what you, I quit writing, but I don't know. I, 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 in my own mind, I, have a, I feel a distinction between what I do and really writing. That's it, really dumb to say, but... I'm not explaining it properly. By gaining confidence in my own way of telling a story, I have been able to develop this free and easy style. Uh, I have no trouble starting a book. E never. I just start it. Um, it doesn't always last. I mean, it doesn't always end up the beginning, you know? Uh, the new one that I just finished writing is called Glitz takes place in Atlantic City and Puerto Rico. Um, I took pages 72 to 76 and pulled them out of there and made them chapter one. And it works better. And you f you'll find yourself doing that. I patch a lot. I, I change, patch, add a little thing here, cut. I cut all the time. I cut out, I try and cut out as many adverbs and adjectives as I can. Uh, I try and, I, I have to, I can't emphasize enough telling the story from someone's point of view with that person's sound. Because you're not only describing what the person sees, but you're also des describing the person's attitude. Telling the story has to be fun, and when it's not, when I'm having trouble, that's when I know I'm doing something wrong. I'll spend a day on a paragraph, a long paragraph, and fight it and know that I'm going to throw that paragraph out before I finish writing the book. But I have to go through this process of trying to make that thing work until finally, finally, I'll change it, I'll change it enough gradually and I'll get it into the shape that I want. I have to please me. And if I please me, then I'm fairly confident I'm going to please some readers. I'm not going to please a mass audience, I don't think. I don't, I don't think I tell a big enough story. I don't think I tell enough story. I'd love to come up with a great idea for a story. But until I do that, I'm content to let to just think up some characters, get them all interacting, and see what happens. Steve uh, Tessich, who wrote Breaking Away, Eyewitness, he said, so many people say to me, how does it feel to be a professional writer now? I mean, they really want to make anything you love into a job. But as soon as it becomes a job, that very thing that got you where you are is lost or hard to maintain. 
how to lose yourself in the writing process, the act of creating something that's uniquely yours and not look at it as a job, a burden. That's what you have to learn, nothing more. I'd be very happy to answer any questions. I gave her something better than that. I gave her a Mercedes. <laughs> a used one, though. <laughs> No. I have, I, well, we have a photographer. Uh, a photographer lives in a hotel in South Beach. There's an old man that runs it. I mean, you start to think of something. An old man, the old man who runs the hotel and the photographer come out of the hotel, and the old man says, uh, we're going to go up to uh, Delray Beach and we're going to pick up this woman, an old friend of mine, who the cops picked up. She was drunk on the street, and they've got her in a, in a county crisis center. And we're going to pick her up. You bring your camera along, because I want you to take a picture of her so that when she sees what a mess the next morning, she sees what a mess she looked like, maybe she'll stop drinking. See, that's how I'm going to, I decided I would get the photographer to meet the film star. I mean, you do step by step by step. But then I added another chapter in front of that a little later. But yes, I just go along as I write. In the back. <laughs> yeah, I heard it. No, I don't know, Chuck. Uh, I wanted to know if I was ever an ex-con or a narc. <laughs> because, <clears throat> and I, I presume because Stick seemed a real character. No, I don't, I don't know any. I, 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 let's see, I picked up a few facts about Jackson, the penitentiary, through an article in the Detroit News Sunday section. There were some references to the cell blocks. There were, there were a few, there were some interviews with convicts. I listened to a program not long ago when I was writing Glitz, interviews with, con no, it was a documentary, convicts at a prison in Delaware talking in a particular program that w in which they could advance from level to level to level and have more freedom. And they're asking the convicts about it, what do you think? And the guy says, well, right from Jump Street, I knew I was going to run a game on him. Well, I get out my piece of paper and write down Jump Street and run in a game, you know? And that's where it comes from there, and a lot of it's made up, too. Yes? Do, you know, 10 to 15 seconds, have you considered using 
No, I have never considered using a, pro a word processor uh, because the, me the mechanical process of putting the words on the paper don't concern me. Uh, I feel much closer to it using a pen. And I, I, do, I, will, I wouldn't even have to type it myself if you get right, you know, if it came to that. Uh, I can always just hand, it, hand the handwritten sheets to my typist. I'm not, I'm not worried about that. Yes. Yeah. No, I don't have a. I don't have a real system for naming my characters, but the names. I have to have the name before I can. Before the character comes to life, I mean, even with the right name, the character doesn't always work. But it. The character has to have the right name for me. I, I wrote a book once called uh, 40 Lashes Less One, which took place in Yuma Penitentiary in 1909. And I, there was a, a, the turnkey, the guard, his name was Mr. Isham. And I couldn't make Mr. Isham talk. I changed his name to Bob Fisher, and he wouldn't shut up. <laughs> I don't know why. Yes. Yes, I spend time with the Detroit homicide cops anytime I need some information. Anytime I need a uh, take a book, split images, where there's not a lot of procedure in it, but there's a scene in a squad room. So I'll go down to police headquarters in Detroit and I know the cops now, and I'll sit in the homicide squad room and just listen to them. I, and the way I started, I did write a piece for the Detroit News in 1978. It was called Impressions of Murder for the Sunday Magazine. And it was the kind of a job that you would take, a reporter would take maybe four days, put four days, uh, devote four days to. Uh, and I stayed there for about two and a half months because it was so good, you see. The switch Bantam is bringing out again in October. Uh, I think they may bring Gold Coast out again. Gold Coast is only avail available now in the British paperback, which you can get in certain, at least, mystery store bookstores. Um, Gold Coast? Good, good. Yes. No, I've never used a tape recorder. Once, in stick, I went down to E.F. Hutton. A friend of mine sells bonds at E.F. Hutton in Detroit, and I set up my little tape recorder and walked around and talked to people and came back to his desk a couple hours later, took the tape recorder home, turned it on, I didn't understand one thing I heard. That was the only time I used a tape recorder. No, I, I make notes. I make notes of keywords. 
Um, in that article that I wrote for the news, um, the cops would swear that they said everything, all the dialogue in there. And it's, it's you know, they said some of it, but it's the way they said it. It's the, it's the rhythm, as you said. Um, that's the main thing. I, I, I try to avoid being too phonetic in the spelling. I don't want to, I don't want it to sound like Uncle Remus, you know? And yet I, I always almost, I always uh, leave on ing words, I leave the g on, like instead of saying I'm going, I say I'm going. And yet other words I will contract a little bit. But it's just, at least I think I'm kind of consistent in what I do, whether it makes much sense or not. But it does, just to get the, the sound, without the appearance of, of uh, dialect. Well, yeah, I know black people. Uh, and with, there are certain, if, if, I, if I have a, a foreign person, a Hispanic person who's, who speaks with an accent, for example, I will keep his, his dialogue pretty much in the present tense, just as I would, if I were to try and speak Spanish to someone, I would say everything in the present tense. I was impressed so much by Ernest Hemingway, uh, the economy, the tightness. Uh, I admired him so much that I decided that's the best way to tell a story. And it seemed that it afforded me the best way for me to develop my own voice that way. Is that what you meant? but sometimes I read it to my wife or she reads it but when certain scenes I'll read aloud to my wife and to get her reaction she doesn't have to say anything I know what her reaction is then I go back and rewrite it <laughs> yes transition came about when I moved from westerns to contemporary stories. Westerns, mine all took place since, say in the early 1880s. Uh, I don't really know how people spoke then. Well, some, you know. Um, but I would write it pretty much the way we speak now without using some of our, our idioms. Uh, in 1961, I stopped writing fiction altogether for about four and a half years. And when I started again, during that time, though, I wrote a lot of, of industrial movies, uh, educational films for Encyclopedia Britannica. Uh, I learned how to write, I learned something about writing movies. Um, when I started writing again, I'm writing stories now in a contemporary setting. And I was intimidated by the idea of the thought 
that I'm going to describe a street in Detroit that everybody in Detroit knows what it looks like, not a street out in some fictitious, fictitious Western town, you see? But I can get away with it. I can describe it any way I want. But now it's going to be a lot harder for me. But I worked at it and worked at it and worked at it, and finally it, it started, it, you know, the, it wasn't a problem anymore. I read, uh, right now, I read uh, William Kennedy. I, I, right now I'm reading uh, Jim Harrison. Uh, who do I read? Judith Kranz. Judith Kranz and... Uh, <laughs> who do I read? I like William Goldman a lot. I like Ira Levin. I like... Yeah, I, I can never think of who I like when I'm when I'm standing here. Um, I like Updike. I like Raymond Carver a lot. Bobby Ann Mason. I don't. I'm I'm reading more books in my genre now than I ever have before, because publishers are sending me books and asking me for comments. And I love books, and I and I read a lot of them. But I don't read, I don't read when I'm writing. There are only certain people I can read when I'm writing. Otherwise, it uh, it throws me off. Yes. I think because they're written in a way that producers can can see the story develop visually. Because they're because they're written in scenes. I think they're filmic in their look, but it doesn't mean that they'll make good movies. Because I haven't seen a good movie made out of any of my work yet. Yes. <laughs> that includes my own. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> no, that yes, of course it includes my own screenplays. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm going to take blame. <laughs> there are too many other people involved. Well, I read at night about a page and a half before I fall asleep. I have books all over the house. I read maybe a dozen books at once because I don't feel I don't feel obliged to finish a book. Um, I finished any book that I really like. I I finish, of course, but I don't I don't feel any obligation to finish a book if it's slow or I don't care for the style. But I'm much more interested when I read in style than I am the way it's written than I am what it's about. I don't really care what it's about if it's if the author grabs me with his style. Yes.
Well, I've been writing most of them lately, but you still don't have any say because the director or the producer will ask you, well, who do you see in these parts? And I tell them, perfect. I give them names that are absolutely perfect for those roles, but they have their own ideas. gotten them here in the first place. Way back. We couldn't have gotten them. I don't understand the question. Yeah, that is, they, they couldn't describe it as a mystery or a thriller or a, you know, I, I think I write thrilling suspense stories. Well, I don't know how suspenseful or thrilling they are, but if you got to call them some. I, I call them crime stories, you know, but that's a pretty broad label. My, my books are in competition in the Mystery Writers of America awards. Uh, but I certainly don't consider myself a mystery writer. There's no mystery ever in what's going on in my book. You know everything that's going on. Got one more. I didn't. I haven't seen a, a real final cut. I saw. Have you seen of the movie Stick, which has just been finished with Burt Reynolds? I'm pleased with some of what I saw. I'm, I was very pleased with Reynolds, mm -hmm. and I really enjoyed working with him. Did they keep the scene with the gasoline? Yes. Let me just tell them, because you, you haven't read it lately. Um, uh, this uh, scene, Stick has been doing time uh, for a few years, and he gets out, and he's trying to go straight. He's trying to do everything right, and he gets a job with a rich guy in Palm Beach, and uh, he's supposed to be kind of a fuck totem. Uh, of a, he's a chauffeur. Well, he's a chauffeur, but he's also he's mixing drinks at this um, outside, and he's um, uh, the, the guy that he's replacing, who's a drunk, shows up, and he's big and burly and sticky, hasn't got a gun, and he he's not looking for trouble or anything. But this guy comes out and berates the boss who's fired him and and hired Stick. And Stick puts up this for, for a little while. He's making drinks and everything. He goes in the garage and he comes back with a can of gasoline. He pours it into a cocktail glass over the rocks. And the, the guy, the bad guy, the fire chauffeur says, what are you trying to do? Are you drinking gasoline now? Stick very quietly walks over to the man, throws the gasoline on him, reaches in his pocket slowly, pulls out his Zippo, lights it and says, are you going to clean out your room or are we going to argue? Uh, no, he didn't. What did he say? Says good night, Cecil. Oh, <laughs> well, I ruined it. Uh, then you find out there wasn't even any gasoline in there, right? No, it, was it was water. But I mean, that's the kind of thing that keeps um, keeps you surprised and keeps you turning the pages on Elmore Leonard. And uh, thanks a minute, he came out from Birmingham, Michigan, not Birmingham, Alabama. Fantastic. Thank you.